Good morning. Yeah, yeah. Um, happy holiday weekend. Glad you're here. My name's Stephen. For those of you who don't know me, and uh, we're in a just—it's a standalone talk, meaning it's not connected to a series. We just wrapped up one uh, series last week, and then we're going to go into a series next week. Uh, next week, we're going to kick off a three-week series on our values and who we are as a church, and then we're going to go into a three-week series on evangelism, and that kind of leads us into our fall, uh, which we're really excited about. Got a lot of cool stuff planned, and we'll uh, unveil that to you uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, today is a standalone, but it's not just a filler. It's really more uh, of a, a transition from where we've come, uh, not just over the summer, but really in the context of our two-year history as a church into, I think, where, where God is taking us. And um, I, I say that um, with, with a slight hesitation in that um, today is not like a, like a line in the sand or something like that. It's more of just a continued uh, discussion on, on letting God fill us and form us as a church. And I think over the next four weeks, if you're new or new-ish, you should have a really good picture of who we think God has called us to be as a church. And so I'm glad you're here uh, for that reason and for a lot of other reasons um, this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for scripture written long ago. And it teaches us to this day. And I pray you would teach us from it this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be all over scripture this morning. Um, not really all over, I guess. We're going to be in the, the gospel of John and, and really the book of Acts and, um, and look at a topic that we're going to call it kind of what it is. Over the last a few hundred years as a church, and not us because we haven't been around, but a church, capital C, the church of Jesus, this has been potentially one of the most divisive topics that there is. And so if you like controversial topics, this morning is for you. It's one of the elements or a theological perspective that we're going to examine this morning with an open mind and an open heart that if we're honest and look back over the course of history has probably divided the church more than anything else. And that's the topic of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, 400, 500 years ago, whatever it was now when Martin Luther pounded, you know, his statements on the church and it split the Catholic church into the uh, Protestant church. That was a big moment of, of, of split in the Christian faith. And then um, throughout history, the Protestant movement, as we know, has um, splintered off into many denominations, but two um, kind of large segments. And on one hand, you have the evangelical idea. And on the other hand, you have the Pentecostal idea, or the Pentecostal movement on one hand and the evangelical movement on the other. Now, under the evangelical movement, we have all sorts of different things like Baptists and uh, Methodists and Presbyterians and Lutherans and a whole bunch of different things. And maybe you've been asked the question, what denomination is Redemption City? And you've probably responded to them, well, they're non-denominational. And we are a non-denominational church in theory. But in practice, we're not a non-denominational church. We're a multi-denominational church. Because many of you come from many different backgrounds. Many of you grew up in Pentecostal movements. Others of you grew up in non-Pentecostal movements that were the complete opposite intentionally from Pentecostal movements. You grew up uh, Presbyterian, you grew up Lutheran, you grew up Methodist, you grew up fill in the blank. And so really our church is a multi-denominational church. Many backgrounds, many different traditions and ideas. 
And even today, some of those things are the things that your preference would dictate that you would want to see this happen at church. Because if fill in the blank doesn't happen, then it doesn't feel like church because that's what you grew up in. And these things can have a tendency to divide. But mature followers of Christ hopefully have learned that we sacrifice preference for unity when preference isn't mandated. Now, if I lined up some of the most popular or famous names in Christianity, Billy Graham, when he was still with us, modern-day preachers like Craig Rochelle, who pastors the largest church in the country, um, you could line up even preachers of old and uh, who, who are famous theologians that we would all respect. And if we went around and we asked certain questions, how many of you believe that Jesus is the only, is the only way to have every hand pop up in a moment? No, you don't have to do this. Oh, that was fun. Um, uh, you can if you want, okay? I'm glad some of you raised your hand. The rest of us, I'm horrible at my job. So, okay, um, we would all raise our hand with that one, okay? Don't, don't participate from here on, okay? Uh, these are the hypothetical, you know, celebrities of the faith. And I said, how many of you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God? Every hand would raise up very quickly, right? How many of you believe in the triune nature of God? Every hand would raise up, right? And, and, and we'd be in full agreement. They said, how many of you believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the utilization of gifts in the modern church? Okay. Some hands would go up. Other hands wouldn't. Other hands would be like, eh. And there would be this pause. Now, these aren't kids in seminary. Okay? These are champions of the faith. These are people that thousands or tens of thousands follow. These are people that God has absolutely poured life and breath into their ministries. They have huge impact. And on these issues that we're going to talk about this morning, there would be a sense of disagreement. And so how do we, as a multi-denominational church, from people who come from all different perspectives, how do we not fall into the two dangerous approaches of Scripture? Here they are. Here there. The first danger is to add to scripture. Always a danger. And some of you, you allow your experiences to inform your perspective on the Bible, your experiences, instead of letting scripture inform your experiences. That's a mistake, by the way. And we fall, or you have seen this first danger people fall into adding to scripture. And, and, and by the way, we've seen cults rise up in that very same way. And I think that in a, in a healthy conversation, you could say that there have been Pentecostal movements that have fallen across this, this line of adding to Scripture, of, 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 of professing something in such a way um, that seems inconsistent with the fact that the Scripture is final in its written form, right? And so, you've seen it abused, and so what you've done is say, I don't want anything to do with anything that smells of that. And there's another danger to scripture. It's minimizing it. And uh, what has happened there is there have been certain denominations or lines of faith that have come all the way over and said, I'm rejecting that. And so we've taken portions of scripture and said, let's just not talk about those. Let's pretend like those don't exist. And so we minimize scripture. By the way, Paul speaks directly against this in the same way that it's talked directly against adding to scripture. Uh, the idea of quenching the Holy Spirit is also forbidden. And so sometimes we minimize scripture. 
And some of you might bring up 1 Corinthians 14. You say, well, doesn't Paul talk about how the church has to be um, orderly and, and under control? Yes, he does. And you know what the issue was in Corinth? The Holy Spirit was so overflowing and so vibrant uh, that, that things were getting a little bit out of control. Let me just suggest, I don't think that's the issue in today's modern church. I don't think the Holy Spirit is so vibrant and out of control that we need to go, hold on, let's calm down. That, that doesn't seem to be the issue. We, of course, at our church, believe in the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Over the last two years as a church, by the way, um, and many of you have grown up in denominationals, denominations where you went 33 years in a denomination and you heard many preachings on God the Father and God the Son and you never once heard a teaching on the Holy Spirit. Does that seem unbalanced? It is. So how do we do this? This is our quest. How do we do this in such a way that leads to unity, not division? Because there is one Holy Spirit. How do we do this in such a way that honors the fact that we are coming from many different perspectives and, and that I think that God sees value in us respecting and honoring different perspectives, but also growing together? How do we let the scripture inform our opinions, not our experiences? This is our hope for this morning as we talk about this subject. Let me tell you how this began. Uh, there's a verse in 1 Thessalonians 1.5 that says, and Paul was writing, he says, when the gospel came to you, it came not just in word, but in power. We spent a lot of time as a church preaching the word of God, preaching the gospel. And many of you would say over the last two years or however long you've been coming, you've seen the gospel more clearly. You've seen the gospel change you. And there is one gospel, Jesus dying for our sins on the cross, his blood shed, his forgiveness covering us. This is the gospel. And we understand it deeper and deeper and we apply it to every area of our lives. But Paul says the gospel came not just in word, but in power. What did he mean by this? What did he mean that the gospel came in power? This is what we're looking at this morning. There's a passage in John, the um, gospel of John, and it's John the Baptist talking, who's not the John that wrote the gospel of John. It's a different John. John one thirty three says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain. Whom did we see the spirit descend and remain? Jesus. He on whom you see the spirit descend and remain. This is he who what? Baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So maybe you've heard this term baptized in the Holy Spirit and you thought, ah, some modern Pentecostal televangelist made that up. No. Some uh, ancient person who was doing witchcraft before people knew any better made it up. No. No, this term is in the Bible. John, by the way, the Baptist, the apostles, the disciples, the Old Testament saints, there's no question, are they children of God? Of course they're children of God. Of course they are. But then John, and we know what John's baptism was. It was a baptism of the repentance, uh, repentance of sin for the forgiveness of sins. And we saw this all throughout when Jesus' early testimony, before he was baptized, people were coming out by droves and they were getting baptized into John's baptism. And then John says, but there's going to be one who comes who baptizes in a different way. Jesus. So what of this baptism? What of this baptism? 
Acts 1.8 says this, but you will receive power, here's that word again, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. These are actually Jesus' last words on earth before he ascended. Oftentimes you're like, oh no, it was the Great Commission. That was before he died, right? The first time, then he resurrects, and then he says these words as his last words to his disciples. Stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It's an interesting verse, especially in light of John chapter 20, verse 22, which says this. And when he, Jesus, had said this, he breathed on them, the disciples, and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is John 20, verse 22. So here you have a risen Jesus speaking to his disciples, clearly Christians, followers, children of God. No questions asked. Of course they are. And Jesus looks at these children of God, these disciples, and he looks at them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Then later in a different interaction with them says, wait here before you do ministry so that the Holy Spirit might fall upon you. And actually, if you go a few verses ahead in Acts chapter 1, you look and see Jesus actually is more clear on what he's doing there. He says, and while staying with them, he ordered them, that's a big word, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. To wait for the promise of the Father. Which he said, you heard from me. It's going all the way back to John chapter 1. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. Here is Jesus looking at his disciples, who he is in a previous encounter, already said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now he's saying to them, wait for the falling or the baptism. Jesus' words, not mine. Wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit before you do anything else. Don't move until that happens. By the way, all throughout the book of Acts, the purpose of baptism... Don't, don't run ahead of me. I know you want to. The purpose of baptism, all the way in the Holy Spirit, all the way through the book of Acts, you know what the, 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 the main reason for it is? Witness. Proclamation of the gospel. Empowerment, boldness to, to preach the good news of Jesus. So he says, wait. Wait until that moment. Now there's a couple of different approaches that people take on this. By the way, in preparation for today's sermon, not just this week, but over the last few weeks and months, I've um, watched carefully who my um, influences are in preparing this. I uh, made careful in, uh, attention this week to study people, um, uh, theologians of the past, whatever, pastors of the past, wh- whoever, um, that are clearly, clearly not Pentecostal intentionally, right? Uh, Because Pentecostals are pretty decided on this one, right? They've made a pretty clear like mark, right? And so I intentionally studied people who no one would say that dude's Pentecostal, okay? Um, Personal background, I grew up in the Assemblies of God, Pentecostal, okay? Left that into churches that would be um, far from Pentecostal. My main influences over the last 10 years, far from Pentecostal, just laying things out there. So this week I uh, studied a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, by the way, who's a Reformed theologian. If you don't know what the word Reformed is, don't worry about it. A Reformed theologian 
who um, also then references a lot of other individuals. If you want the sermon, I'll send it to you. You can ask me for it. And um, within this, he addresses what some people's questions are or, or thoughts are uh, when we talk about Acts chapter 1. And one of them is this, that what we're seeing right there was a special, unique moment in the history of the church that the power of the Holy Spirit was only for the apostles who knew Jesus before his um, death and resurrection and then had to receive the Holy Spirit in this way, in a new way. That's one of the ideas presented, which sounds good in theory, but is inconsistent with the rest of the book of Acts, which we'll look at in a moment. Another idea is that the entire movement of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts was simply reserved for the early church. It wasn't supposed to continue. Now, um, I'm paraphrasing, but Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, by the way, again, is anything but Pentecostal, anything but Pentecostal, writes about this. It's quoted in Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem, who, again, is anything but Pentecostal. And in, I'm paraphrasing. In essence, says this. To minimize the work of the Holy Spirit to the era of the first church is to discredit the New Testament to our lives entirely now. Powerful statement. He's basically saying, if we say that the Holy Spirit was just for right then, then why do we follow any of the New Testament? If you're not catching my drift, anybody who is on the non-Pentecostal line, okay, you're on the other side, looking at the Pentecostals going, why are you barking? This is weird, right? Okay, you're, you're, you're doing that. Martin Lloyd-Jones is your dude, Okay? Like, he's your guy. He's influenced probably more uh, in that realm of Christianity than almost anybody else. Okay? He's your guy. And that's what he says. Let's look at Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, by the way, is a group of people who are new covenant followers of Jesus. New covenant in the same way that you and I are. They didn't know Jesus... They didn't know Jesus before his death. They, they weren't the apostles. They weren't the disciples. They were new covenant Christians, just like you and I are, okay? Let's see what's said. Acts chapter eight. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. There's that word, word again. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. This wasn't like John the Baptist's baptism. This was the, the baptism, of the, the, this is salvation as we understand it. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip, the proclamation of the gospel, exactly as we would proclaim each and every week when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. The signs, by the way, were a promise of Jesus in, Acts, uh, I'm sorry, in Mark chapter 16 where he said, if you preach in, in the name of Jesus, then, then, then salvations will occur and signs will happen as a results. So it was a fulfillment of Jesus in Mark 16. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city, as I would imagine there would be. We have two options, by the way, right now. We have option one, which is to say, and that was just for then. That was just for then. Or we have another option, which is to believe that the power of the Holy Spirit is still as alive and active today as it was then. Now, Philip, who's one of the apostles, shows up and he proclaims the gospel to a group of people that have never heard it. He preached the gospel. Jesus is up in heaven. There's no difference between um, somebody preaching the gospel to us now and what Philip did back then. 
Look what happens in verse 12. But when they believed, when they believed, what is it that we hope that our friends do when we preach the gospel to them? We hope they believe, right? We hope we, we, we preach the gospel to them. They were unsaved, they were pagan, and then they believe in the gospel. Amen, hallelujah. This is good news. And what did these people do? They believed. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they weren't preaching some, uh, some false gospel or, or some half gospel or some kind of quasi gospel. They were preaching the full gospel of Jesus. As he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, look what happened. They believed and they were baptized. This is awesome. We would celebrate that. We do celebrate this today when somebody's not a Christian and they become a Christian and they believe in the gospel and they're baptized. We clap and we celebrate and we cheer and we should because we love salvation. And this is exactly what happened with the Christians in Samaria. They believed. They were baptized. Awesome. Now here's what can happen. Here's what happened in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 10, Acts 19. I think, um, by the way, an understanding of Ephesians chapter 1 actually explains this principle to us as well. In that sermon I listened to by Martin Lloyd-Jones, he referenced people like this. Some of you, these names will mean something. John Owen, Thomas Goodwin. Those dudes were Puritans. If there's one thing I know about the Puritans, nobody was looking at the Puritans thinking, those dudes need to just calm down, okay? John Wesley, D.L. Moody, Jonathan Edwards not champions of the Pentecostal movement. Look what happens in Acts chapter 8, verse 12. Well, we already looked at 12. So then they become saved. Look what happens next. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Everyone's amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, there is no question, just like John, just like the disciples, just like the Old Testament saints, there is zero question on whether or not these people are children of God. It's settled. Everybody agrees. They're children of God. The children of God. These guys, they're children of God. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Notice them. They sent to them Peter and John. Okay? They didn't send to them crazy, you know, uh, dude on the side who had just become a Christian and was inexperienced in the faith. They sent to them the two most seasoned people they had. The church was very young at the time. But they sent them the two most seasoned. The people who were the most intimate with Jesus, you could argue, from a human perspective. Those are the two that they sent to them. In fact, if there's anyone in the early church that we can trust, it's probably Peter and John, because they saw more of Jesus than anybody else. And so uh, these guys, all these Christians of Samaria, they all become Christians. They all say yes to Jesus. They all believe in the gospel. And then the apostles hear it and they said, that's incredible. Peter and John, go to them. Go. Now, um, a lot of times, a lot of times, what happens? We do this too in modern church. We say, oh, they became Christians. Let's go to them and let's disciple them. And we'll do this. We'll teach them good theology and how to become good church churchgoers. Send them to seasoned Christians. That's what we got to accomplish. Good theology and how do you attend church well and engage. So let's send them some mature Christians. That's not why they sent Peter and John. It wasn't to teach them good theology. It wasn't to teach them how to be a good churchgoer. 
Why'd they send him? They sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them. By the way, if you have the authority to send Peter and John, okay? Like if you're such in a place where you can look at Peter and John and say, go. Well, then you've clearly been given some authority. Okay? They send to them Peter and John, who came down and what? Prayed for them, who? The new Christians, that they what? Might receive the Holy Spirit. That they might receive the Holy Spirit. Let me recap here. Because this is what we have. We have clear children of God, saved and baptized. By the way, we 100% know this. No one becomes a Christian outside of the um, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So there is a work in the Holy Spirit in every single Christian. No one moves from death to life without the work of the Holy Spirit by the preaching of the gospel in their heart. We know that, right? So there is an encounter and an interaction with the Holy Spirit and part of the process of your salvation. But now we have a clear picture of people who are children of God baptized into the faith. It's applauded, celebrated. And post that moment, they say, now go to them and make sure they have the Holy Spirit. Make sure they have the Holy Spirit. If you're interested in this kind of thing, by the way, by that, I mean not the Holy Spirit. You should be interested in that. Um, in, In stories of old... Google this afternoon, Jonathan Edwards' Holy Spirit experience. He talks about a moment. He said he was on a horse, got off the horse. Jonathan Edwards, by the way, maybe the most famous preacher in American history, said, um, where I ascended into the heavenlies. Said it was an hour, I think. I was fully conscious, but the presence of the Holy Spirit fell on me unlike I had ever experienced So Peter and John show up and they make sure that they received the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at what it says. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. For they had not yet been baptized in him. For they had not yet been immersed in his power and presence. Had they been saved? Yes. Had they been given a new heart? Yes. But according to this, the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on them. But they had listened to these words. I could almost get crucified or stoned for saying these words. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Had only. Imagine saying that. Ah, yes, those, those, yes, those Christians, those brothers, they're awesome, they're incredible. But they've only been baptized into the name of Jesus. Only. I mean, we would typically look at somebody who would say that oftentimes I'm out of church and say, you're a heretic, that's all it takes. What do you mean? They've only been baptized in the name of Jesus. That's all we do. No, therefore go and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Written into the very scripture, friends. The very scriptures. They had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. In other words, it's not where the story ends. 
Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. By the way, in Acts chapter 10, they receive the Holy Spirit and nobody touches anybody. So if you're freaking out, it's okay. Doesn't have to happen. Synopsis of the room. Pentecostals. Yes! Finally! Non-Pentecostals. I was just starting to like this church. (laughs) There has to be a way to be unified in this. To sacrifice preference when necessary. But to never quench the spirit of a living God. There has to be. And there has to be a way where people who look in at this from a hundred different angles can stand together and say, we never want to add to scripture. And we never want to minimize it either. But the same power that produced the book of Acts and the same power that allowed uh, 13 Jewish guys, really 12, because, you know, one of them was not so great, 12 Jewish guys to transform the history of the world, that that same power can still do something today. Some of you are highly agitated this morning because I've had a gate in front of me the entire time and I haven't referenced it. Let me solve your annoyance. We had to put a baby gate into our, um, our, our house uh, a little while ago. Um, there it is. You can see it. Um, Lindsay made it because she's awesome, right? You asked me to buy a baby gate. I get a piece of board and I just put it in front of the door, right? She makes it look like something from Pinterest. So $19.99 if you want to order one. Just kidding. Okay. So we had to put that in. And here's why we had to put it in. Because there are other, there, we had to put it in, and Reagan gets here, you know, she holds on to it, and she looks at me like that. And we had to put it in there because on the other side of the gate into our kitchen and into our laundry room are, are things, some of Reagan's favorite things, okay? Some of her favorite things. Applesauce, okay? And shoes, which is her second favorite food, okay? And so, it's a true story right now. All right, we're trying to call him that one. And and there are some of her favorite things on the other side, but here's the deal. The reason we had to put up the gate is because Reagan is not yet mature enough to appropriately handle the things on the other side of the gate. And so we had to put a gate there, not because we want to stop her from experiencing the rest of the house. That is the, the last thing on my mind as her father, is to stop her from having full access to my house. Not only does Reagan have full access to my house, one day she'll own it and everything in it. But right now, she's not mature enough to handle what's on the other side of it. And so she's stuck behind it. But there will be a day when Reagan will be mature enough to open up the gates and to walk through it and to experience everything on the other side of it. 
I think it is fair to say that it, some of us have lived a Christian life entirely on this side of the gate. And I'm telling you, if you will open the gate, some of your favorite things will be on the other side. Some of your favorite things. And I know your mind is already running wild because you open up the gate. You did this once when you were in high school and you looked around and you were like, whoa, what is that? Or you went to a concert and you were like, what are they doing? Why is there gold dust? This is weird. <laughs> Listen. Oh, oh, can this be taken advantage of? Yes. Can it be abused? Yes. Absolutely. No doubt about it. Let me just take a step back. If two Puritan theologians, two Reformed guys, John Wesley and D.L. Moody, all agree on the same thing, I want that. And what they were referencing was experiences with the Holy Spirit of stepping through the gate experiences where the presence of the Holy Spirit is so thick. Yesterday, I went for a walk. Four minutes into my walk, it rained for the only 20 minutes of the entire day. I was soaked. And the only thing I could think of is Jesus as real as this rain is on my face. Baptize me, fill me, drench me with your Holy Spirit. Some of your favorite things, I'm telling you, in your experience with the Heavenly Father through the power of His Holy Spirit will happen on this side of the gate, but they will never happen if you just stay on this side. Now here's what I know. We can't fabricate this. And we can't pass it from one to another. Can't be like, tag, you're it. Tag, you're it. Jesus does this. That's what it says in the scriptures. Here's what you can do. You can be open to it. You can say, God, whatever that is, whatever was going on in Acts chapter 8, 10, 19, Ephesians 1, whatever that sealing with the Holy Spirit means, whatever that is, will you do that for me? And if you're bold enough to pray this, be careful. Okay? Because one, you're asking for the enemy to pick up attack on you unlike ever before. Unlike ever before. Lindsay Reagan and I haven't been able to get out of bed the last three days. Okay. And secondly, I'll do it at some point. Like it'll happen. I, it might not mean what you think it means. It might not mean what you've heard in a, in a misabuse of what it, it means. Okay. But what it, I think it does mean, there's a kid... He's not a kid. He's an adult. 
that goes to our church. We had Wayne Grudem Systematic Theology in like four days. Okay, something like that, which is like a 1,200-page book. We had a time of prayer with our college students. We got done, and he goes, what was that? Or, or, did you sense the Holy Spirit? Yeah. He goes, dude, I've never done that before. I've never had that before. That's life over here. And I'm telling you, like the Christians in Acts 8, you're missing something. And maybe the reason, maybe the reason it is so scary for you to evangelize. It's so hard for you to grow. Change is happening so slow. I'm not saying this absolutely, but maybe it's because you're trying to do it all on your own. We sing songs about it. Sometimes we don't even know what we're singing. Would you stand with me? Whether it's the first time or the hundredth time, if you would be bold enough in the quietness of your own heart, pray this. your own heart. Father, whatever more is, I want it. Whatever fear I have, I surrender. Whatever hesitation befalls me, I put it aside. And if there is more, give it to me, please. Drench me Fill me, baptize me, pour on me. Let me have moments of prayer and of worship where your Holy Spirit is so thick, so strong, so evident. it feels as if heaven has fallen. So Father, the gate is open. Do as you will.